Good morning, Soul. Long time no see. It's me. <laughs> I'm the problem, it's me. Hey, we are back in the book of Mark. Happy Palm Sunday. Uh, this is the day the Lord has made, and I will choose to rejoice and to be glad in it. Palm Sunday. We are also, at the same time as it being Palm Sunday today, have been journeying through uh, the book of Mark. Uh, we've been teaching through the book of Mark, and we are in Mark chapter 10. The pa- passage for Palm Sunday is Mark chapter 11. So this is what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to skip ahead to Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11 this morning. And there's about two or three sermons remaining in Mark chapter 10. And then after Easter, we're going to circle on back. And we're going to be sure to address those, those passages. But you'll know the end of the story. You know what I'm saying? So uh, today be, begins you getting the, the inside scoop uh, behind the scenes as to what happens after Jesus comes into Jerusalem, finishes that journey from uh, the transfiguration downward, and then into Jerusalem. Okay, cool. You ready? You ready? Yeah, be with me. Let's do this. Um, We're going to pray, but a keen soul remarked to me, uh, Jordan, every time that you pray at the beginning of a sermon, you pray the same prayer. And I was like, yeah, that's been a habit of mine. And I thought that actually might be a good place to start this morning is maybe just to unpack that prayer a little bit. Uh, the prayer goes something like this, and we're going to pray it in a moment. But God, our Father, may you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, illuminate the eyes of our hearts that we might know you more, or know you better, or what, however I want to end the prayer that day. Uh, in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Well, what's going on in that prayer? What's going on in, in that prayer before we go to the Scriptures? God, our Father, may you... By the power of your Holy Spirit, illuminate the eyes of our hearts that we might come to know you more. The the Holy Spirit is in the work of illumination. Uh, The Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesians that he prays that, that the Lord would open the eyes of their hearts. It's kind of weird to think that our hearts have eyes, but we see things with our heart. You feel things with your heart. We use the word feel, but really what's going on is you see things, you understand things with your heart. And one of the things that we come to understand with our heart, not like our physical heart pumping blood, but with our our, uh, metaphorical heart uh, in in which Jesus, you know, uh, makes a little home. Uh, In that heart, we, we feel things. We come to see things. We see the reality of the gospel. Uh, the, the reality of Christ and Christ crucified, Christ resurrected. We see the grace of Jesus Christ with the eyes of our hearts. And so what this prayer is, coming after the Apostle Paul, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts, illuminate the eyes of our hearts. This, the, the Holy Spirit has inspired God's Word. And the Holy Spirit illuminates God's Word to our heart. The, the Holy Spirit is at, at, at work in both ends of the Scripture, in the writing of the Scripture and in the reading of the Scripture. This is why you can sit down and read the Bible and, and be convicted. This is why you can sit down and read the Bible and be comforted, because the Holy Spirit is at work. So that's, that's that little prayer that we pray. So let's go ahead and, and pray that little prayer. Father God, may you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, illuminate the eyes of of our hearts, that we may come to know you more. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. We ask that the Holy Spirit illuminates our eyes as we go to Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. And we read, either in your Bibles or on the screens, as they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. 
Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell him, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered just as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Uh, anybody been to church on Palm Sunday before? Show of hands. Let's go. Come on now. You've been to church on Palm Sunday before. You may know, I see you, you may know what a Palm Sunday sermon sounds like. You would know that Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Jesus then is hailed as king by the crowds who shout Hosanna, which is save or save us. Jesus, save us as you come into Jerusalem. And Jesus is headed for his end point, which is the temple. And then the sermonizing starts, and we kind of start getting into it, and we say the crowds, the crowds, the crowds expected Jesus to liberate them from Rome. And then, using three points and a little alliteration, I go... Well, how are you like the crowds? What is the expectation that you've put in Jesus? They expected him to liberate them from Rome, but he really came to save them from their sins. And what are you expecting to G Jesus to do that he actually didn't come to do? And then I close the sermon, send you on your way, and tell you to come back on Resurrection Sunday, on Easter. And there's nothing really wrong with that sermon. I've preached that sermon almost exactly. How did I know? I went back to my Palm Sunday notes from 2018, and was like, let's dig this one up. There's nothing wrong with that sermon, but usually that sermon starts at the wrong point. That, that sermon starts at Jesus entering into Jerusalem, but if you look at our passage here today in Mark, and this story is told in all four of the Gospels, uh, the story doesn't start with Jesus entering into Jerusalem. The, the story doesn't start with the triumphal entry. In fact, more than half the story is, how did we get to that point? And when we tell the story, beginning at Jesus comes into Jerusalem, we kind of like see this bird's eye view. At least I do. In my mind's eye, I zoom out and I see the bird's eye view of Jesus coming into town and kind of the, the, the horde of people surrounding him and singing or, or saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, and then it moves on. But in my telling of that, or in my mind's eye, Jesus is not an active agent in the story. He's a passive agent who's kind of shuttled along with the crowds. But Jesus isn't a passive agent in the Palm Sunday narrative. I mean, if anyone, if anyone is an active agent in the story of the scriptures, it's going to be God. It's going to be Jesus. And I think we need to read it in that light. If Jesus is the active agent in the Palm Sunday story, in the triumphal entry, then what's the significance of that? He doesn't just start riding to Jerusalem. All right, Jesus is here. And the crowds, you know, they're a little bit misinformed about what he's come to do. Uh, so on and so forth, he's going to die and resurrect. The story is a story of active agency on the part of Jesus Christ. How do I know that? I mean, I'm not making that up. 
verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 1, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. Jesus sent. Jesus sent. He said, all right, let's go, boys. Go. Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt there. Go find the colt. Bring it on back. Jesus has orchestrated this thing. And as I think about the story of Holy Week, as Jesus entering into Jerusalem, it's no accident that he enters. He sent them to get the colt, to come bring it. He then gets on the colt, and then he rides through the streets as the people shout, Hosanna, and he doesn't stop them. He knows what he's doing. He knows what his end point is. Where does Jesus end up? He ends up at the, the temple. And then he see, looks around, kind of scopes it out, and he's like, I'm going to be back here tomorrow. And tomorrow, which is the Monday of Holy Week, Jesus goes to the temple and he clears out the money changers. It's not an accident that Jesus ends up back at the temple. It's not like these events were happening to Jesus. No, Jesus is orchestrating this approach to the temple. And then on Tuesday, when Jesus is on the, uh, on the Mount of Olives and he's teaching and he's talking about the end of the age, he's not doing this accidentally. He very well knows what he is saying. It's not like he just ended up on the Mount of Olives because the narrative pushed him that way. He said, we're going to go. You know, when we look on Thursday and the Last Supper, it's not that Jesus accidentally washed the feet of his disciples. The, the feet washing wasn't something that, that happened to Jesus. It was something that he chose to do, right? Uh, the, the Last Supper, the participation in that meal. How is it that we often read the Palm Sunday narrative of Jesus having no agency in the story, that it's kind of just like the crowds pushed him along? Well, what if he came into Jerusalem, which I suggest he did, with intention, that he had orchestrated this whole thing? Then what's the significance of it? Is it just, do we just leave it at the crowds? Do we just leave it at the crowds? And while the, the, the summary of the Palm Sunday sermon I gave is good, and, and it would be right and good to preach that sermon, I couldn't help but think, well, what about Jesus arranging this whole thing? What is that saying to us, that Jesus arranges the journey into Jerusalem? Yes, the crowds hail him as king, but Jesus kick-started this initiative. Jesus went to the cross. Didn't just happen to him. He chose it. And so what's the significance of that? Uh, in February, mid-February, we preached the Transfiguration passage, where there is this holy moment up on the mountain, and then as they come down, Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John, they're murmuring with each other. They're, they're asking the question, what uh, uh, what does it mean? Jesus is talking that the Son of Man must die, rise from the again. What ri rise again? What does this mean? And they're really hashing it out. From the moment of the transfiguration down the mountain and then on the road to Jerusalem, uh, Jesus has been orchestrating this whole thing. The crowds hail Jesus as King. Blessed is, is the one who comes, the, the, the Davidic kingdom. Our ancestor David, who had a good kingdom, you know, his ancestor Jesus is going to come and establish that good kingdom again. Hosanna, save us. Save us from the powers at be. Restore your kingdom here on earth, is what the crowds are shouting. Which leads me to think, okay, so Jesus isn't stopping the crowds from shouting, Hosanna, save us. They're not, he's not stopping the crowds uh, from, from uh, speaking of the inauguration of his kingdom as he comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. What kind of king is Jesus? 
If Jesus is the active agent in the whole story, he's been hailed as king and he's not stopping. And that's actually important because if you remember, after Jesus does miracles throughout the book of Mark, he stops people from telling others about his miracles. He says, it's not my time yet. Or he says, you're healed, you're restored, but go and don't tell anyone. Jesus is saying, it's not the time yet for this thing to, to come to its climax. But here, I mean, here there's people in front of the procession, behind the procession, like there is a show going on. And Jesus doesn't stop any of them. Clearly, he's saying, my time has come. So what, what, what time is it for this king? What kind of king is Jesus? I often wonder. I wonder if those who were in the streets saying, or, or, or shouting Hosanna, I wonder if they remember the, the prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where he prophesied the coming king, of Jerusalem, the coming king of Israel, rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. What kind of king is Jesus? We know what kind of king the crowds expected him to be. They expected him to be savior king, savior, liberator king, freedom from oppression king, be, uh, or establish the Davidic kingdom king, be gone with our oppressors Rome king. But what kind of king orchestrates Holy Week? What kind of king puts these pieces together? That's our question this morning. Uh, allow me to suggest that Jesus is a confrontational king. Jesus is a confrontational king. I think we leave this part out of our traditional Palm Sunday narratives. Because when we start with Jesus coming into Jerusalem, it's like, well, he just showed up. But when we read about this whole, let's go get the cult type thing, Jesus is actually orchestrating this. Jesus is saying, now is the time. I'm rolling up on the scene. This is not an accident. Jesus has, it's like a cosmic uh, showdown. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and he's picked this time, or a Western, if you're old enough to watch Westerns. I'm not, but a Western. The, like, the, the guy rolls into town. I do know the final countdown, though, which I don't think goes into Western films. Europe, sorry. Right, but that's, that's kind of the theme music that's playing in my head as Jesus comes into town, right? Fine. <laughs> Jesus is the active agent in the story. He has arranged a confrontation. Who is he confronting? I mean, he's, where does he end up at the end of the day? Temple. Jesus ends up at the temple at the end of the day. He's arranged a confrontation with the religious rulers of Israel. He's arranged this confrontation. He gets on that colt, walks down the street, and ends up at the temple. And for whatever reason, he doesn't flip the tables that night. It's too late. So he says, I'm going to be back in the morning. And what does he do when he comes back? He, he, he's essentially saying, by driving the money changers out of the temple, he's saying, your worship is polluted. Your worship is idolatrous. Your worship, uh, your worship is unbecoming of a king. He confronts the religious establishment. What else does Jesus do? He confronts Rome. He confronts the political forces at play. How do we know this? I mean, Jesus is nose to nose with Pilate. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, I am. 
And then Pilate continues to question him, and Jesus, it's like, again, I mean, it's a confrontation. It's a standoff. Jesus, Jesus refuses to answer Pilate's next questions. And Pilate's amazed. The gall of this guy. You know, a confrontation demands a response. Okay, I was washing my car. Um, you push the button, you get the ticket, you drive in, and then, like, the clock starts, right? And so I was washing my car, and I'm, like, super effective, super efficient, because I'm a fiscal conservative, and I'm like, I'm only spending $7.81, not $8 on this car wash. And so I'm washing my car as quick as I can, and I hear screams. And not like that we're, like, having a water fight screams. <laughs> Nobody's having a water fight when the timer's running, right? But, like, something's wrong screams. And so I, I go out of the wash bay, and I'm trying to, like, figure out what, what's going on. And the screams are coming from the little cubicle uh, where the attendant sits and where, they pay, where you pay on the way out. And so I go over to where the screams are coming from, and there's a young lady who's working as the attendant, and there's a gentleman in this tiny little cubicle, and he's standing over top of her, and he's verbally berating her, and she's screaming. It's like one of those moments where your, like, adrenaline just, like, instantly kicks in. And I'm like, well, what am I going to do? So I go into the cubicle. Now there's three of us in the tiny little cubicle. Um, my presence was confrontational. And when there's three people in a tiny little cubicle, you can't ignore the third person who showed up. And so the gentleman who's just incredibly irate, I don't remember what I said, but I surely got his attention. Why? Because a confrontation demands a response. And so he turned to me and he looked at me and he was taller than me. Not many people are, he was. And he just like made eye contact with me. You know, the, like the type of like, I'm going to uh, intimidate you and then I'll destroy you kind of look. Um, he gave me that look. And then he asked, uh, what are you going to do? And now I'm not generally this quick, um, but I said, I'll pay your $3.10, uh, which didn't, didn't go over well. Um, and I'd love to say this has like a nice, like I can make, make a point out of how this story ended, but it only escalated and other people got involved and it, wa it wasn't a pretty scene. At the end of the day, this dude left. Uh, no, nobody was, was physically hurt. But when you get into the little cubicle, when somebody invades your space, I mean, on all counts in that little cubicle, a confrontation demands a response. You can't just ignore it. And Jesus is showing up and he's confronting the religious rulers. And they give him a response. I mean, they orchestrate his murder. They orchestrate his execution. I mean, Jesus confronts Rome. And they give him a response. I mean, Pilate gives him an audience. And the response is, I mean, do as you wish with him. They release a prisoner. Uh, Jesus also comes to confront you and me. Palm Sunday, Jesus entering into Jerusalem is a confrontation for the religious rulers. It's a, it's a confrontation for Rome, the political rulers, but it's also a confrontation for you and me. Um, the author and theologian and pastor Tim Keller, he says, Jesus is humble, yes, but he's not at all modest. Jesus is humble, but he's not at all modest. Jesus is humble. He rides in on a donkey, not on a war horse. I mean, this is kind of like the chief image that we use of Jesus's humility and how he, you know, the, 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 the hallmark of his kingdom, his upside down kingdom. He comes in on a donkey, not on a war horse. It, it demonstrates his humility, right? He is the humble king, but he's not at all modest. I mean, what does he do? He walks over the coats or he's on the donkey, and the donkey walks over the coats. In the dusty, dirty streets of the Middle East, you don't lay down your coats on the ground for a friend. You don't even lay your coats down on the ground for a family member. You lay them down on the ground to keep the dust down for royalty. Jesus is humble, but he's not at all modest. He doesn't stop them from putting their coats down. 
He walks right or rides right over those coats. I mean, we know Jesus is humble. The Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians chapter 2 makes a point of Jesus's humility when he tells the, the Philippians, your attitude should be that the same as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The Apostle Paul is saying, like, Jesus is the chief eternal example of humility. But he's not at all modest. He rides over the colts. Now, also, I'm not a big equestrian guy, so I had to look this up, and it is true. You don't just get on an unbroken colt. You have to break the colt. You have to train, you know, you train the dog, you give the treats, right? The dog can then jump and spin. You can't just jump on the back of a donkey, but Jesus does. That, 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 that there's no modesty in that, this untrained animal that Jesus can somehow get on and masterfully ride into town. I'm assuming it wasn't like jerking around and bumping him off. There's no modesty in that. He knows what he's doing. I don't even need to train this animal. Jesus is humble but he's not at all modest. And he's not modest in his confrontation of you and me. Jesus rides into town and he says, crown me or kill me. Your choice. Crown me or kill me. The religious elite, crown me or kill me. Rome, crown me or kill me. You, crown me or kill me. But you don't get to like me. You don't, you don't just get me as sidekick Jesus. Crown me or kill me. You don't get me as an add-on to your spirituality. Crown me or kill me. Either I am the Lord of your life or I am not. He is not modest in his confrontation of us. He's coming and he's saying, well, make a choice. Guess what? I'm in town now. I've rolled into Jerusalem. Make your choice. Am I your king or am I not? He comes in humbly, but not at all modest. He makes a claim on you. He makes a claim on me. He makes a claim on, on your identity. Who is it that you say you are? Because in his word, he's made a claim on who you, or, or, or on who you actually are. He makes a claim on your comfort. He's com he confronts you in your comfort. Look, I find myself telling the young men in our community this over and over and over as they come and sit with me in the office. It's, it's not just about building a quaint life for yourself. Having enough money to go on vacation in January when it gets real cold. Nice, truly. But that's not what it's all about. That's not what this life is about. Jesus comes and he confronts us in our comforts, in the charades that, 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 or that have deceived us. He confronts us in our identity, in who we say we are and who he says we are. He confronts us in our idolatry, in all the things that we've placed in the throne of our hearts. When Jesus rolls into town and says, crown me or kill me, he says there's no, other, there's no room for anything else to take the chief priority of your heart. That that seat, the throne of your heart, is for me and me alone. He's humble, but he's not at all modest. Jesus makes a claim on you. He makes a claim on me. I mean, Jesus comes to save, or, or the crowds think Jesus comes to save from Rome, but Jesus has come to save them from themselves. 
Jesus has come to save you from yourself, from your fallen sinful state. Jesus has, has come to save me from myself. I don't know about you. You're probably super holy. Um, but I'm a disaster. Is that the vote of confidence you want as Pastor Jerry goes on sabbatical? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know about you, but, but I'm a disaster. Um, Paul, one of our worship team members, last Sunday, the coffee time countdown went on and I was just sitting. He came up and he threw his arm around me. He's like, hey, Jordan, what's up? What's going on? And I was like, uh, whatever, life's good. He's like, no, what's, re- what's really going on? And I was like, um, well, I'm graduating and I'm like in the throes of it right now, like the thick of it. Like I am turning in assignment after assignment after assignment and I'm just trying to figure this thing out, man. I need to get to April 22nd when I cross that stage. It's going to be very glorious and sweet. You're all invited. <laughs> you can come. <laughs> come party. Um, but I was like, it, it's, it's a tough time. And Paul, in his beautiful innocence, oh, hi, guy. In his beautiful innocence, he says to me, uh, what do you want to do when you graduate? And I was like, oh, probably just exactly what I was doing before I graduate. It's kind of like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, but what do you want to do when you graduate? And that moment s- struck me, Paul. That moment struck me. And my answer to him was that I want to be a better dad and I want to be a better husband. I, I get a little emotional about it because I realize I'm not the man I want to be. You know, you're, you're not the person that you want to be. I'm sure of it. Except for Holy Holly, wherever she is in the corner, right? You're not the person you want to be. I'm not the person that I want to be. And Jesus is making a claim on me. Jesus is making a claim on you. He confronts us. He's here to save you from yourself. He's here to save me from myself. This is what Jesus does. All right, your disaster pastor is moving on. Um, Secondly, Jesus is a suffering and a dying king. That's what this passage teaches us. Jesus is a suffering and dying king. If you look, uh, for those of you who have your Bibles, what does it say at the top of Mark chapter 11? Somebody just shout it out. Tell me you're with me. What does it say? The little, what's the subheader at the top of Mark chapter 11? Somebody. <laughs> you got a good Bible. Mine says the triumphal entry. Um, so that did not work. Thanks, though. I sincerely appreciate your willingness to engage me and to speak out, because that takes a lot of courage. Um, it, my Bible says the triumphal entry, and that's kind of funny. It's kind of funny, because it, it, it frames how we often talk about Palm Sunday. We talk of Palm Sunday as Jesus' triumph into Jerusalem. He's hailed as king. It's, oh, there's this uh, Roman processional almost that's taking place, but it's kind of weird because it's not the war horse, it's the donkey, and the crowds are shouting, save us from Rome. This thing that's going on is hailed as a triumphal entry, but it's not at all triumphant by the standards of this world. Jesus surely is, is, is the humble king, but as he enters Jerusalem in this triumphal entry, he's actually powerful in weakness. He is powerful, not in strength, but in weakness. He comes lowly on the donkey, and he doesn't ascend as king, though he's hailed as king. What does he do? Dies. He dies. I mean, the triumphal entry is not all that triumphant. That's why in your Bible, they didn't put triumphal entry. It's not that triumphant in the eyes of the world. Jesus is the king who comes, is declared as king, makes procession through the city, and then ends up dying. 
Now, surely it's triumphant by the grace of God and His resurrection, but it's Palm Sunday today. It's not Easter. We'll get to Easter. Jesus rolls into town, and His power is demonstrated in His weakness, in His suffering, and in His dying. I'm I'm a problem solver by nature. Maybe not by nature or by nurture. It's something. It's one of the two. I like to solve problems. But as I come into Christian ministry... And in my experience, LinkedIn told me 12 years last week or a couple weeks ago, 12 years in Christian ministry, and as you engage with the problems of people, you're, you're quick to realize that you have little to offer. There's little I can do to solve your problems. Pastor Joanne called me on Monday this week, and, and she just said, hey, Jordan, just got to share some, like, just some heavy things with you just going on in our community. I, I, and, and she didn't need a, a, a solution. She just needed somebody to talk to. She just needed somebody to talk to, somebody to share the burden. You know, I look at death of a loved one. I look at financial ruin. Uh, I look at hardship after hardship. And that's just this week, represented by the people here. And if you, if you miss this point, then your Christianity is not going to make sense. If you miss the point that Jesus is the suffering and dying king, then when you suffer and when you come to die, this whole thing doesn't make sense. What do I have to offer you, honestly? What, what does any pastor have to offer you? We want a solution to our problems. We want the tickety-boo, you know, message that, like, we can just tie a bow on it, and it's like, huzzah, into the next week of victory. Victory's coming. Comes next Sunday. But we're, we're on Palm Sunday where Jesus is the suffering and dying king, the active agent in his own suffering and dying. He's orchestrated this thing. It is by intention that he ends up in Jerusalem. It's by intention that he ends up on a cross, the suffering and dying king. What do I have to offer you as pastor? I don't have much. More, more confidence for you. I don't have much, but, but I, I, I have Christ. I have Christ and I have Christ crucified. That's what I have for you. In the darkest night of your soul, I I have Christ, and I have Christ crucified. When everything's coming down around you, I, I, I can give you Christ. I may not have walked the road that you're walking, but I know someone who has. I may not know the pain that you're enduring, but I know someone who's endured that pain. I may not know what it's like to be exactly where you are today, but I know one who does, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the suffering and dying king. In this story, as we move through this week, come here on Friday. It's like a funeral for Jesus. Wear black if you want. It is, it is a deep, dark descent into suffering and death. But guess what? If we don't do that, then this Christianity thing doesn't make sense because you're going to (laughs) die. Happy Sunday. You're going to die. I'm going to die. And I'll probably suffer my whole way to that point. And what do I have in this life if I don't have Jesus? The Apostle Paul makes this point. He makes this point in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, in his letter to the Corinthians. When he goes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, he says, For I have resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except for Christ and Christ crucified. You know, the, the hymn, 
for those of you who are old enough to remember hymns, I'm just like harping on the old enough people today. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Oh, for grace to trust him. Lord, I, that's exactly what Mike said when he was up here earlier. Lord, I trust you, but I, continue, I, I want to continue to trust you more. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Jesus is the suffering servant. Back with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah prophesies of, of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, looks ahead to Jesus, hundreds of years before Jesus, and says, Surely he took up our infirmities, and he carried our sorrows. Surely he took up our infirmities, and he carried our sorrows. And yet we consider him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. You know, we confuse Jesus's power with weakness because he, he died. But he was pierced. Why? For our transgressions. He was crushed. Why? For our iniquities. And the punishment that was upon him brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. You know what I have to offer you today? I have a suffering and a dying king. I have a king who confronts you first and also suffers and dies for you. The suffering servant who died for you, for me. He took up our iniquities. He carried our sorrows. Man, if you need someone to carry your sorrows this morning, Jesus. If you need someone to convict you in your complacency, Jesus. It's interesting because it's the God who confronts us is the God who comforts us. There's your alliteration. That's it. That's all you're getting from me. The God who confronts us is the God who comforts us. The Jesus who rides into town and confronts everyone by his death. What we perceive as weakness turns strength. The Jesus Christ, the suffering and the dying king, because he suffered, because he's carried your sorrow, because he knows what it's like to be in the valley of the shadow of death. Because of that, he can comfort us. Um, Jesus is the confrontational king. What's he confronting you in? He showed up on the scene. You're in the eight by eight cubicle with you, your sin, and Jesus. What are you going to do about it? What are those areas? Take a moment. Do a little heart check. Lord, search me and know me. Know my anxious thoughts. Lord, is there a way in me that is unpleasing to you? What is it? Uh, Jesus gives us the church. Jesus gives us one another. He gives us the person sitting next to you to carry these burdens together. He's confronting you in your identity, in your idolatry, in your comfort, in your whatever it may be. And he calls you to engage with him. Spin it then. Jesus then comforts you. He's humble. He is the comforter. 
upon the cross, he suffered and died for you. And he knows the depths of your suffering today. And he is here for you.